this better. So I'm going to stop there and call our first witness who's patiently waiting online, Leighton Gray. Leighton, can you hear us? Yes, sir. Good morning. Okay. And can you turn your video on now that we're... Certainly. There we go. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'd like to start by asking you to state your full name, spelling your first and last name for the record. My name is Leighton Bellamy Unterweiner Gray. My first name is spelled L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Last name is G-R-E-Y, like the famous football cup. And Leighton, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Now, just to introduce you, you are a lit litigation lawyer, and you've been intensely involved in COVID-19-related cases since 2020. That's true. And you're also a podcaster, um, and you've featured COVID issues and other issues, and if people want to track down your podcasts, it's called Gray Matter. That is correct. Okay. Um, do you want to share with us, um, you started publishing articles in the spring of 2020, and do you want to share with us your experience and kind of what happened and what you were doing? Certainly. Uh, first of all, I want to say that it's an honor to be part of this proceeding, especially in Saskatchewan, which is uh, the, the, the heritage of my family. My great-grandfather was the chief of the Carry the Kettle Band, uh, which is at Sintaluda, Saskatchewan. I was born in Regina. And uh, so it is an honor to be part of this historic um, proceeding and to have my testimony part of that record, especially in Saskatchewan. So going back to the early part of the pandemic, as many people experienced it, um, everyone has different things to say about that. I was alarmed early on uh, about the pandemic and about particularly about the federal government's uh, how the federal government was responding to it because um, uh, I'm an Albertan and so I haven't had the experience of a liberal government that's ever been good for our province or the people who inhabit it and uh, I had been I'd been watching very closely the Trudeau government's uh, encroachment upon individual rights and freedoms which if you trace it back started from the very beginning, from the beginning of, you know, the promise of sunny ways and transparent government. So when the pandemic was was declared, I was suspicious already about, you know, 15 days to flatten the curve. And uh, during that time period, of course, um, I'm, I'm the senior managing partner of a law firm, and I was concerned about our employees and how we were going to keep people working. Uh, the courts were shut down. And uh, so I began to do a lot of writing, and I was publishing things online. And um, some of the things that I said uh, were, as you were stating earlier, were counter-narrative. Um, and um, in around that time, I had been appointed to a board uh, to select judges in the province of Alberta. And um, because of the, the things that I'd been publishing online, um, I was attacked um, by the CBC. They published a, a hit piece on me that, uh, you know, granted to me many of the epithets that uh, that all, all, all unvaccinated Canadians were branded with by our Prime Minister. Later on, I was called a racist, a misogynist, um, something called a latent anti-Semite. I'm still not quite sure what that means. 
but I was publishing things online. Uh, for example, I I said that I was concerned that uh, George Soros, for example, would use his money to influence the outcome of the 2020 presidential elections, which happened. I expressed concern about about Black Lives Matters in in terms of the the looting and so on, and that they were beholden to the left. And frankly, that turned out to be true. But the thing that really got me in trouble was I published in the spring of 2020 uh, my suspicion that the Trudeau government would use the pandemic as an excuse to invoke emergency powers. And of course, that did happen. So I, I went through a cancel culture experience where I was um, I was asked by the Alberta government to uh, resign from the board uh, to select judges. And that was under pressure from the Alberta NDP leftist party that operates here in Alberta. Uh, my name was kicked around like a football and my reputation was damaged uh, because of the things that I'd writing, speaking out against the counter narrative. And of course, this was picked up by uh, all of the mass media, including CBC, CTV, Global and others. And um, not only that, but uh, I was at that time an adjudicator in law society disciplinary hearings here in Alberta and had been for some time. And the law society summarily dismissed me uh, from that board. And they did so publicly. They published that on their website so that every lawyer and every member of the public in Alberta would see that. It was a public shaming. It was a public whipping. Uh, and, uh, and so um, I lived through that. And, of course, the media picked that up. Um, and that was uh, that was put out there as well. And then I guess the most ignominious thing that I suffered was I was um, a longtime director for decades of the Alberta Civil Trial Lawyers Association, which is a volunteer group of lawyers in Alberta who um, who really try to help um, the the disadvantaged, uh, the, the people who are hurt in, in, in injury proceedings, uh, in, in injury accidents and like medical negligence in Alberta. And I just received a, a lifetime humanitarian award from them for my work with uh, Indigenous peoples um, because I spent a lot of time working with um, people who had been involved in Indian residential schools claims. And I received their uh, highest award in October of 2019, this lifetime humanitarian award. And um, they actually asked me to resign from the board and, and told me that they wanted the award back. Um, I, I refused that, uh, but ultimately I, I, left, I left the board and I'm no longer involved with the Alberta Civil Trial Lawyers Association. Um, that's the bad news. That's the terrible part of it. Uh, the good news is um, going through that cancel culture experience, which I would not wish on, on anyone, um, it did introduce me to another group of people, uh, people like Ezra Levant and Sheila Gunn-Reed and John Carpe of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, they reached out to me and they, and especially John Carpe, gave me the opportunity to get involved and to use uh, my skills that I'd acquired over a lifetime uh, of being a lawyer, a litigation lawyer, um, to actually help fight some of these cases in the courts. So that's sort of my, uh, in the Marvel world, that would be my, my, uh, my origin story in terms of a COVID litigator. Right. Now, one of the cases that you did was the Ingram case. Do you want right. to share with us about that? Right. So the Ingram case is named after a lady named uh, Rebecca Ingram. Uh, she was not my client. She's actually represented by an excellent lawyer, a good friend of mine named Jeffrey Rath. But Jeffrey Rath and, uh, and myself um, 
were were hired. I was hired through the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms to represent some churches um, who were were complaining about um, the violation of religious freedoms that all of us experienced during COVID. Rebecca Ingram was a lady who had been a gym owner. Of course, she she lost her business because uh, because it had been shut down because of the lockdown restrictions. So in December of 2020, uh, there was an application brought in that case. And this case uh, was based upon two uh, main legal arguments. One alleged violations of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but the other more interesting argument, one that I think may ultimately be successful, is that our Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dean Hinshaw, uh, who um, is no longer our Chief Medical Officer of Health, she's now the Deputy Minister in, uh, or Deputy uh, uh, in that, in that uh, capacity in British Columbia, that she exceeded her legal authority in making all of these uh, lockdown orders. But the thrust of the case was to challenge the government's lockdown restrictions. And uh, this began in December of 2020 with an injunction application, which failed. And uh, that began really a series of, of losses that we suffered uh, throughout that process. And, you know, it began to dawn on me, and this comes back to some of the the, uh, the, the comments that you were making this morning, Sean, that we really, as, as Canadians, uh, as uh, those who were fighting uh, government oppression and restrictions, we really were the visiting team. We really were on, on foreign soil going into the courts, uh, having to, you know, we were arguing against masking, but we're all wearing masks, and a judge is wearing masks, and a clerk is wearing masks. We're, we're speaking through plexiglass or speaking over Zoom uh, as we are right now. Any any lawyer who has practiced in the courts knows that it's more than just a screen. It's a place. It, it, it's called court because going back far enough, you were in the presence of a duke or a count or even a king or a queen arguing your case. Um, so so uh, this was uh, the, the, this began to become really obvious that uh, that something really, really important had changed. Um, and, but we went through a series of uh, pre-hearing applications that involved striking out of our pleadings, uh, striking out affidavit evidence. All of these applications were summarily, uh, uh, you know, successful coming from the government. Honestly, it felt like, uh, you know, we were the, the Washington generals that used to play against the Harlem Globe, Globetrotters, if you remember that. And um, it, it, perhaps the most, the most, uh, troubling thing was this. When we filed all of our materials uh, in, in December of 2020 in support of the, of the injunction, we actually filed um, substantial medical evidence, including an affidavit, affidavits by people like uh, Dave Redman, who's, an, who's the emergencies expert who's going to testify in this hearing next week in Red Deer, and uh, one of the most brilliant scientific minds in the world in terms of epidemiology is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya we understand, testified in Winnipeg. So we filed all this affidavit evidence showing very clearly that things like masks didn't work, that the risk of asymptomatic spread was minuscule, uh, that really uh, the weight of evidence was that um, you know, this virus, the risk of it, was confined to a very small, extremely vulnerable segment of the, of the population. And more than that, that by locking down everyone and wasting resources on people who are at no risk of COVID, we were really hurting the people who are most vulnerable. 
And of course, all of that, we, we filed all that evidence. Um, and, and yet we were faced with, on the other side, uh, the government filing nothing. In fact, um, they received a six-month adjournment in order to present their scientific evidence. So this is really important to understand. The entire province of Alberta was locked down under lockdown restrictions, which were very similar to the ones that were experienced by everyone across the country. And yet, the government of Alberta had not yet produced a single iota, one item of scientific evidence to support all of those restrictions. In fact, they were granted an adjournment of six months by the courts of Alberta just so that they could produce that evidence. And when we finally got that evidence, um, with all due respect to them, it was rubbish. Uh, it was all it was all speculation. Uh, it was all uh, modeling that, uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya recognized that the models that they were relying upon, uh, predicting the, the, the destruction and annihilation of our healthcare system in Alberta, was based upon climate modeling. He actually recognized that they used the same models to predict climate change, to predict the, the annihilation of our of our uh, healthcare system in Alberta. So their, their science and their evidence was junk. But perhaps most troubling about this is the length of time that this process took. So we filed for that injunction December of 2020. And Sean, we still don't have a decision. On April the 22nd now of 2023, that case is still with the courts. It's sitting there waiting for a decision. And there are hundreds of cases in the Alberta courts that are waiting the outcome of that Ingram decision and still no decision. Well, there's an old adage that we lawyers know uh, that's called, that, that goes something like justice delayed is justice denied. And so well, this is very, very concerning because of course, uh, those of us who have been raised up in the law, uh, particularly during the period when I went to law school, uh, we're taught that, this, that the charter and the, and the constitution, the rule of law were sacrosanct, that these, these were cherished things that protected uh, not only uh, Canadians, but 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 you know protected our our entire political structure and all of our institutions. So, what do those charter rights mean uh, when you go before a court and they're not, they're not even respected in the court where you're standing? What do those rights mean when uh, they the 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 determination of whether or not they've even been violated uh, has to wait uh, years to be determined? Uh, what, what does that mean when, as you say, the trucker convoy, truckers can go to Ottawa and do more to free Canadians from the bondage of these restrictions than, than our constitutional law? And, uh, you know, the, the lack of respect for the rule of law continues to this day. I read only this morning that our government in Ottawa is actually trying to commission or, or pass a bill uh, that would permit it to whitewash uh, and to and to essentially give itself its own report card on how it handled, you know, the COVID nineteen pandemic. So uh, with all of that, the Ingram case is going on. We're hopeful that we're going to get a correct decision in it. I'm not hopeful, very hopeful that um, the court is going to find that um, that that the violation of Canadians' charter rights uh, that that outweighed the public interest in locking everyone down because, of course, there isn't a single court in Canada that has made that determination. That alone is horrifying, frankly. But uh, but uh, but essentially, that's the story of, of the Ingram case thus far. No, the best I... thing that we did... Oh, sorry. sorry, just want to finish off yep. this point. Yep. The best thing we did is we did get the chance 
to cross-examine the chief medical officer of health for several days. And, um, and that was quite revealing. And I like to think that we were instrumental in her losing her job here in Alberta. Thank you. Right. Well, and I understood that, and I wanted to pull out of you some of the things that you learned. I don't know if you saw um, Professor Bruce Party's presentation in Toronto. I did. So, you know, for those of um, watching that didn't see that, as Professor Party was explaining how basically, you know, the legislative branch has been <clears throat> delegating to um, the administrative branch, and then the courts are showing deference so that basically we've arrived in an administrative state. But your cross-examination of Ms. Hinshaw revealed that actually in Alberta it wasn't an abdication to the administrative state. It just appeared to be. There was something else going on. And can you share with us that? I think especially Albertans yeah. need to hear this. Certainly. And when you hear from, from uh, Mr. Redman, he'll be able to explain this better than than I can, but essentially, unlike in other provinces, in Alberta, uh, there was never a state of public emergency declared. And in law, that is something distinct from a public health emergency. So what happened was in Alberta, uh, the Jason Kenney government, when the pandemic was declared, they made some, some changes, some executive changes to the Public Health Act in this province, and they declared a Public Health Act emergency. And that essentially made our chief medical officer of health Guinea Hinshaw, the most powerful person in the history of our province. It essentially appointed her a health dictator. Uh, she had control over every aspect of our lives, and the wording of the statute uh, actually says that uh, she could use any means necessary to fight the pandemic, and she did use any means necessary. Um, and so during the, uh, during the course of our cross-examination, though, something very surprising happened. Uh, I, when I asked her about her orders, um, she began to disclose that, in fact, although the, these orders were in her name, uh, they were not her orders, that they in, instead expressed the, the will of the executive and that she was going to the premier and cabinet to, to get the content to put in these health orders. Now, this was never fully explained to Albertans, and she used to conduct daily uh, press conferences. In fact, there were over 400 of them that I reviewed um, that uh, honestly, in, in my respectful view, were, were essentially psyops in which she would repeatedly tell Albertans that, to get used to the new normal and to trust government and to, to protect your, your neighbors by not leaving your house and so on and so on. But essentially what was revealed during the course of cross-examination is that she was going to, to cabinet and getting instructions about what to put in these health orders. Um, and of course, in, under Alberta law, this is, this is illegal uh, because under the Public Health Act, the whole purpose of creating a, a Public Health Act emergency for the entire province, which was unprecedented at that time. Normally, a Public Health Act emergency would be something that would be localized, but we had it in the entire province under a Public Health Act emergency. The whole purpose of doing that was to have a health expert a doctor uh, basically protect Alberta from from this uh, this great uh, pandemic, this great threat, um, and so it, it defeats the whole purpose of creating a public health act emergency to go to lay people, such as the premier and cabinet, who have no medical expertise or knowledge at all, and to get from them the contents of these of these quote unquote health orders, which of course were not health orders. They were orders concerning every aspect of, of our lives, from 
you know what when when and how we could worship whether or not we could shop what we could whether we could go out and exercise whether our kids could attend school and on and on and on so what was revealed is that the whole the whole structure of what Albertans were told about what they were experiencing from through their government uh, whose job it was to protect them that was their stated task was uh, essentially uh, a fraud it was a, it was a lie um, and you know dr hinshaw was was not there in order to protect the public uh, in fact that narrative shifted initially from you know 15 days to 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 uh, control the spread and then it was of course we have to uh, we have to protect and preserve the healthcare system we have to save the healthcare system and then it turned into uh, it was all about vaccinations. We have to all, all get vaccinated to end the pandemic. One of the things, one of the scariest things that Dr. Hinshaw said, though, is I put it to her that that uh, in in the met- in terms of the metrics of her decision, with, that what she did is she decided that, um, that first of all she acknowledged that her health orders, the health orders that were passed, all violated. The, the, the civil liberties and the human rights of Albertans. She acknowledged that readily. But what she did is she said that the protection of the healthcare system, uh, a faceless, uh, you know, soulless institution, that that was more important than the violation of the individual rights. So that in, in that balancing act, and this is the way she put it, on balance, um, you know, violating the, the individual human rights of four million people was justified uh, in order to protect the healthcare system, and and really the healthcare system uh, is not what she was talking about. In my respectful view, what she was really talking about was protection of of, uh, of essentially autocratic executive government power. That's that's really what what was being said, and, uh, and to me that was the most horrifying thing that I heard her say throughout uh, the whole time that we cross examined her. Right, and and that. I think is shocking, will be shocking to Albertans because they just assumed that she was the one exercising authority, not the Premier and Cabinet. That was certainly the impression that was, that was given. However, it's very clear from, from the evidence that came out that that was not, that was not the truth, not the truth at all. Um, and that ultimately what, was, what it was about was uh, trying to, to shift the, the mindset of Albertans uh, from one, and, and understand those of those of people who are Albertans understand that you know, as as in every region of the country, we have different aspects of our culture. But Albertans tend to be very very uh, self reliant. Uh, we tend to be uh, somewhat libertarian overall in our thinking, uh, not painting everyone with the same brush. But uh, it was very clear that there was a psyop going on. In fact, in the course of the evidence uh, that came out during that hearing. I cross-examined Dr. Hinshaw. The Alberta government actually commissioned uh, a psychological report uh, about how, what language and what methods to use in messaging to Albertans in order to get them to comply with lockdown restrictions and also with, of course, the, the vaccination programs that rolled out in the, in, the latter, in the latter stages of what we now call the pandemic. That's alarming. I think that's the softest term I can use. How mm-hmm. did uh, how did discovering all of this make you feel? 
Well, I was talking about this with Jeff Rath and, and uh, you know, he and I are both, you know, 30 plus year lawyers in Alberta. And, and he and I uh, sort of chuckled about this, um, not in a funny way, but in a sense that we were both under the same, you called it a spell. And we were under a spell uh, such that we actually thought that, uh, that our, our legal system was something uh, special. And and that uh, you know judges uh, were fair and impartial. That there was something uh, that that was uh, that that veiled that um, in integrity and and justice. And my experience of doing COVID litigation uh, sadly has exploded that. And uh, it's it's actually diffi- very difficult for me in dealing with courts and judges now to get myself uh, back to some semblance of the mindset that I had that I had before. Uh, and, and, and so that is, that is a struggle. And one other thing I'd like to share apart from the Ingram case that, that really uh, impacted me in this way is I had the pleasure to represent two courageous pastors in Alberta, James Coates of the Grace Life Church, um, who spent 35 days in the remand center because he refused, he refused to sign a bail condition that essentially would violate his religious conscience. That would uh, that would that would say that that he would prompt. He was he was made to 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 uh, he was given a horrible dilemma between his, uh, accepting his liberty, exercising his liberty, which is guaranteed under the Constitution, and violating his promise to God as a Christian pastor, uh, because the condition would require him not to preach the the, the truth and the gospel to his congregation. And he, he had to, he, he chose, he, he put his God above his liberty and uh, he suffered 35 days. Anybody who's ever visited a jail or, or a remand center uh, must understand that it's one of the worst places that they could possibly go. I know as a lawyer going there to visit clients that uh, many times I could not wait to get out of those places. And to imagine someone to choose to be there for 35 days and just imagine the courage and the integrity of this human being. Anyway, I had the pleasure of representing him because he faced a number of uh, COVID tickets because he and his congregation, you know, refused to to comply with the government diktats about, uh, you know, the the capacity limits and so on, which we now know were a bunch of bollocks, so that there was really no no risk to the public whatsoever. The idea of a super spreader event now is is ridiculous. We know we now know in hindsight with what we know about masking and social distancing and all the other arbitrary uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, I also had the opportunity to represent Pastor Timothy Stevens so, of Calgary. No, before you move um, on to, sure. to Pastor Stevens, is is my understanding, uh, just in an earlier conversation with you, is that um, when you were defending Pastor Coates in court, that the provincial court judge didn't even find that his charter rights had been violated, let alone having to go to what I would call an abomination dealing with Section 1 of the Charter. That's correct. Um, the the court essentially said that uh, Pastor Coates's charter right, his his right to liberty under Section Seven of the Charter, the right to life, liberty, and security of the person, was not violated simply because uh, Pastor Coates chose to remain at the remand center. That in fact he was he was granted liberty under his bail conditions, the the the, the conditional release, uh, but that he chose not to exercise it. Uh, and the court put absolutely no weight whatsoever uh, in in this horrible dilemma that this man had been placed in 
through totally through totally unnecessary scientifically unjustified um, uh, restrictions. And it's important to note that in that hearing, the the Crown prosecutors were not put to the requirement of producing a single item of scientific evidence for the court. In fact, what they produced was a Alberta Health Services investigator who had a social sciences background. And when I cross-examined her about her training as an investigator, uh, it, it, the the sum uh, the, the 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 net sum effect of that was that she participated in in a single one hour Zoom call. This person who had re received uh, absolutely no training as an investigator was given the power, was given the incredible power to to cite Pastor Coates uh, in violation of the of the uh, of these health dictates. Uh, he was charged with criminal code offenses. This Alberta Health Services investigator was given the power to summon the police, to arrest Pastor Coates, to jail him. And this same investigator, with one hour of training on a Zoom call about how to conduct investigations, was given the power ultimately to, 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 have, to recommend and to have signed into law an order that resulted in the triple barricading of the Grace Life Church for months, which was an international embarrassment and probably was, was significantly responsible for Jason Kenney's ousting as our premier. But just imagine, uh, and, and, and this, is, this is not unique. Uh, many people who are watching this probably saw um, Archer Pawlowski, another uh, Alberta pastor, um, and, and there was a video that went viral where he was kicking these people out of his church, calling them uh, Nazis and, and Gestapo. Um, the, 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 the people who were given power by Verna Yu, who, who has also been since fired, who, who ran Alberta Health Services, these investigators were given this extraordinary power of law uh, without any knowledge or understanding of how to wield it. Almost like if you watch Disney's Sorcerer's Apprentice. Uh, that's that's exactly what we experienced here in Alberta, and uh, it it really is stunning uh, that um, that these people would would be given such power with very little knowledge or understanding or training of uh, of, of really what the, what this power that they were handed what it meant and the significance of it because it it just had incredible ramifications uh, for for our province and and indeed for our entire country. Right. Um. Before you go on to uh, speaking about Pastor Timothy Stevens, I'm wondering if I can just back you up and have you speak about more generally, you acted for a lot of employees who lost their jobs, you know, mm -hmm. CN employees, CP, Pure Later, Canada Post, WestJet. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. You, you kind of became the go-to guy mm -hmm. um, to help with these things. And can you tell us about, about what you encountered with that? Yes, uh, you know this is um, this is this was a great honor to represent these people, but also a great uh, frustration because um, most of these uh, people, and we're talking about several thousands of them from companies who work for companies like CN, CP, Purulator, Canada Post, um, WestJet, and and many others, even the Salvation Army. Uh, these were people who are primarily unionized workers. 
And uh, unionized workers, some of the viewers might realize that they are bound by something called the collective bargaining agreement. And uh, Bruce Party uh, can do a better job of explaining this than I can because he's an expert in this area. But essentially, under a collective bargaining agreement, individual workers, they, they contract out their employment rights to a, to a bargaining unit with the idea that, that this will sort of equalize the bargaining power between a very large-scale employer like CN, which is mostly owned by Bill Gates, by the way, and, and these individual workers. The problem, the problem is that, unfortunately, these unions are primarily uh, run in a, in, a, in a socialist fashion. They've become, they've become very much leftist organizations. And, and, and uh, when it came to COVID, they clearly, by and large, with some notable exceptions, uh, we're not we're not advocating for workers, and so the process that we ran into repeatedly went something like this: a worker uh, who refused to take the vaccination uh, was told that they had to apply for an exemption. There were only two types of exemptions available: one was a religious exemption, and the other was a medical one. In each case, uh, there were very stringent tests created. Uh, and that, and almost nobody qualify, actually qualified for an, ex for an exemption. So these workers were told that they would be uh, put on something called an involuntary unpaid leave of absence, which when you're sitting at your coffee table in the morning, you know, staring in your, in your coffee feels a lot like you're fired uh, because you're not getting paid, you're indefinitely off work, and the on your only passport to go back to work to support your family is if you agree to have this experimental drug injected into your body. And it's significant to note a lot of these workers that I described, these companies, they were impacted by federal government orders, the, the Ministry of Transport orders, because, uh, of course, the Trudeau government required every single federally government-regulated employer to, to comply. And all these companies had their own vaccine mandates. The, the federal government, the Trudeau government, did not have the temerity uh, to actually impose a national vaccine mandate, that would have been clearly illegal. In fact, there, there's a, an opinion paper on this from 1996 that was given to the, to the Canadian government at that time about this. So that gives you an idea of how long they've been thinking about this. But in any event, they did the next best thing. Uh, and of course, most people know the, the, the federal government is the largest employer in this country. And so all these workers were impacted in this way, all of them put out of work. So just imagine, just imagine this awful choice that you're faced with, um, that you, you, you have to decide whether or not to work and support your family or to take this, this drug that you, you know or you understand is, is dangerous or it violates your religious conscience or whatever. So you turn to your union for help. Your union says this. Your union says comply. Your union says we got this independent legal opinion. And it says that your rights are not being violated and everything that the company and that the government are doing is fine. So just take the vax. So, of, of course, these people, they're, they're being put out the door by their employer. They have no recourse there. They can't sue them because they're a member of this collective bargaining agreement and the union won't help them. And moreover, when they complain about the union not helping them uh, and they would bring a duty of uh, uh, or the duty of, you know, fair representation complaints. Uh, what they heard from these from these administrative tribunals, these government tribunals, was that the of course the vaccines, the sing song, the vaccines are safe and effective, um, and uh, and that there and that there's no danger. 
So these people turn to to outside legal counsel, people like me, and we tried to sort of pierce pierce through the veil unsuccessfully. We brought uh, we, we attempted to bring human rights complaints against these employers in cases in, in Manitoba, B.C. and Alberta. And in each case, we were told by the courts based upon Supreme Court of Canada legislation that the court would not take up any jurisdiction. And so all these people were simply sent back uh, to their unions. Uh, so there, there are now still, as we sit, many, many thousands of unionized workers in Alberta or, or through, throughout the country who have been put out of work and have absolutely no recourse against their employers uh, because of the workings of these, uh, of these collective bargaining agreements and these unions. I can't prove it, but based upon their actions, I have very, very strong suspicions that all of this was, was calculated beforehand and that, that there was uh, some level of conspiracy between the unions and these employers and the government of Canada. It's certainly, at least that's the way it seemed to play out in real time as the, as the lawyer representing these, these aggrieved workers. Now, Leighton, I, I just want to make sure that, that people listening to you understand. So if, if people were unionized, they were supposed to go to the union to have a grievance filed against their employer, but the, the union would not file a grievance. Correct. And then if you tried to take it to court because they, they've, they've met a dead end with the, the union, basically you couldn't, you'd get kicked out of court and be told, well, go back, you know, to the union and, and because that's where you're supposed to find your remedy. Correct. So these people basically had no opportunity at all to have an adjudication for being, you know, technically fired for not taking a vaccine. That's correct. And I think a big part of this is that none of these companies, nor the Canadian government, nor, nor these pharmaceutical companies want to have a court actually adjudicate upon the safety and efficacy of vaccines. And of course, given what we know now about the Pfizer dump and the fact that in Alberta alone, uh, death from unknown causes is the number one cause of death in our province. Death from unknown causes has increased, it's, it's increased sevenfold since the, un, since the unleashing of these vaccines upon our society. Uh, none of these people want that, that issue adjudicated. And that is the next great challenge for people like me, is to try and bring uh, that, that issue to justice to be adjudicated uh, by our courts, because it must be. We, not, we must get to the bottom of the truth uh, about uh, whether or not these vaccines were safe and effective, whether or not companies like Pfizer and Moderna and, and uh, Johnson Johnson knew that, and and also um, what these what this means long term uh, for Canadians uh, and for society uh, because we we now have these vaccines unleashed they're they're in people's bodies um, and the vast majority of people have taken them uh, and you know what does that mean we don't know uh, the, of course uh, I know you have you've had doctors who've testified in these proceedings. Um, and everyone who has spoken out uh, has been has been uh, has been sanctioned, um, and the vast majority of doctors, and understandably so, they they don't want to speak out. Uh, they won't say that the unknown cause is the vaccine, even though that's the, that's the quiet part being spoken out loud, as you said as you said so eloquently this morning. That's the truth about these vaccines. But as I said, that's the undiscovered country. That's where people like me need to go. 
Um, and uh, until we get to the bottom of that, till we get a court to adjudicate on that, um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be living under this spell, under this lie that, you know, none of this, this ever happened. And if we permit our governments to do it, they're going to whitewash the fact of what they did to us. Yeah, it, it's interesting just to have a, a dialogue with you because you'll be familiar with the Ontario Court of Appeal case, uh, CG versus JH. And right. Just, just for the listeners, and, I, and I'll tell you what I just find funny about it, and then I want to ask you about an Alberta case that was was somewhat different involving inmates. But for those um, that aren't familiar with that case, so it was a family law case, and, and the father wanted the child vaccinated, and the mother didn't, and at the trial level, or, or motion level, the, the judge refused to side for the father and basically wasn't willing to just accept the government narrative. And so it's appealed to the Ontario Court of Appeal, which basically instructed the lower courts, the way I read the case, um, to take judicial notice, which means you can accept as a fact without there being any evidence led before you that if Health Canada approves a vaccine, that that would be prima facie evidence that it is safe and effective. And this is in relation to COVID vaccines. And Leighton, what I find so interesting is, so the Ontario Court of Appeal obviously was not aware that those vaccines were approved under a test in an interim order where the words safety and efficacy weren't even mentioned let alone, you know, there being any requirement for proof. So the Ontario Court of Appeal is basically, in my opinion, uh, instructing lower co courts to take judicial notice of a phantom. Um, but I just wanted you to kind of juxtapose that with a case that happened in Alberta where basically, you know, when the shoe was on the other foot, the court took the opposite position. Do you want to share with us th about that? Right, and, and, you know, this concept of judicial notice used to be something somewhat extraordinary. And uh, in my experience, it was often very difficult to try to get a court to take judicial notice of anything. Uh, you know, courts want to hear evidence, and that's rightly so. That's the that's the tradition of our courts, um, and uh, that upholds a very high st evidentiary standard that is necessary. But what we experienced in COVID was something much different. Whenever the government asked the court to take judicial notice of something called a pandemic, or that there was a threat to the healthcare system or that people needed to wear masks, or that social distancing was necessary, the courts always read, readily adopted that, that COVID narrative. In fact, our courts in Alberta were the most locked down place uh, in the entire province. In fact, they, they were one of the last places to remove, remove restrictions. We even had a very eminent criminal lawyer in our province. Um, uh, he, was, he was found uh, uh, in contempt of court because he refused to don a mask. He was in a courtroom with a judge who, uh, who even during a time when there, were, when there was no masking law in force in Alberta, was wearing a mask. And the courts here in Alberta are permitted, the judges are permitted to maintain uh, uh, exclusive jurisdiction over the safety of their courts. And she required this lawyer to wear a mask, even though there was no general masking law, he refused. And um, ultimately, he was made to purchase contempt. Uh, he was found in contempt of court. But the case that you're referring to is one, this was early on in the pandemic, and this illustrates how this judicial notice concept doesn't work the other way. Um, there's, there was a judge uh, here in Alberta who heard a case uh, from some inmates at the Edmonton Remand Center. And the essence of the case was that 
early on in the pandemic when it was thought that people could get COVID from doing just about anything. These inmates uh, brought a, 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 an application that they should all be released because of the risk of exposure of a mass spreader event at the Edmonton Remand Center, kind of a clever uh, habeas corpus uh, argument. But the, the court there would have none of it. The court said, well, I can't take judicial notice of the existence of something called a, pa a pandemic. I have to have scientific evidence, which is which quite correct uh, in law. But it's that's the only case that I know of, and I've researched the, this carefully in Alberta. It's the only case I know of where a court actually said that it could not take judicial notice of something called a pandemic and the risk of, uh, of a mass spreader event and the like. And so that that goes to show how how, how the how the way that the government is treated or was treated in the courts of our province when it comes to this narrative uh, is very different from when these things are argued on behalf of individual uh, citizens or people who are who are um, even even when they're using the narrative trying to use the government's narrative in their favor how they they really can get no relief from the courts now Leighton can I have you talk now about Pastor Timothy Stevens and um, right. what your involvement was and what happened with his case. Yeah, so another very, very courageous pastor, Pastor Timothy Stevens uh, of Fairview Baptist Church. Um, he um, He's a close friend of James Coates, and he suffered, uh, you know, similar uh, treatment uh, because at his church, um, again, he, he refused to, to they, they refused to, to comply with these restrictions. His church was closed, was shut down, just as James Coates's was. Um, and so he was ticketed. At one point, um, this uh, pastor was was actually, um, uh, he was he was charged with uh, violating something called the whistle stop injunction, um, which was uh, really an unprecedented thing in Alberta law. There was a, there was a, an injunction placed on any man, woman, and child in Alberta who publicly, who dared to publicly protest the government's narrative uh, about 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 the pandemic and lockdown restrictions, and uh, there were you know literally hundreds of people uh, who were who were charged and some of them jailed because of it. Uh, one of them is uh, Chris Scott of the Whistle Stop Cafe, who I understand is going to testify next week in Red Deer, um, but this also included Pastor. Timothy Stevens. So what Pastor Stevens did is uh, he started getting his congregation together and they would meet at undisclosed uh, locations. And this became kind of a game of cat and mouse with the Alberta Health Services employees. And ultimately, it's my understanding that they were able to, to detect him having an outdoor church service uh, with his congregation. And as a result of that, they, they arrested him. And uh, there is a, a video that Rebel News produced. They were on the spot when he was arrested at his home with his six young children and his and his wife Rachel. And uh, it's a beautiful sunny day. And uh, of course, uh, Timothy Stevens, he uh, with great dignity, uh, you know, suffers all of this. You can see he quietly goes along, but the kids are just screaming. Uh, and this is a, a moment that I'm sure that they will never forget. Uh, I have to say, I was brought to tears watching it myself, seeing this father wrenched away from his family simply because he was conducting an outdoor church service. And of course, so, based so upon Layton, the government's... Layton, sorry, just, go ahead. Just so you know, we have the video. We've had our video oh, yes. guy well, take, that, 
take the Rebel yeah. News reporter part out, but we'll we'll play it right now just so right. that that those that are participating actually understand what you're saying. Sure. That's his wife there in the foreground. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so, and just understand, so people understand the level of, of incompetency that was involved here. Uh, when he was first arrested and jailed, he was in jail, uh, the Alberta Health Services people had actually gone out and, and the police had actually served the wrong person. They actually served the, 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 the injunction order on the wrong person, and it was stipulated under the terms of the injunction that it, it was necessary for anyone who violated the injunction to actually be be served with the document so that they would know and they would have notice of the terms because otherwise how can you be in violation unless you know what the terms were well that they went out and they served the wrong person that the injunction had never been served on pastor timothy stevens they went out and arrested him and he was in jail i re i discovered this um and i revealed it to to the lawyers and to the court that he had never been served, that they'd actually served the wrong person. And it still took several days. I had to actually obtain a statutory declaration, a sworn statement from the person who they had mistakenly served with the injunction before they would finally release him. Uh, and so that was the first time he was arrested. The second time he was arrested was because um, he had simply conducted an outdoor church service. And it's worth noting that uh, in the in the Manitoba proceeding, uh, there was an expert that was called for the government, and uh, they were asked under oath whether there was any scientific study uh, supporting the idea that of a of a super spreader event that could occur uh, outside. And the, and the fact is, uh, the and, and the the answer is no. There actually is no there is no accepted study anywhere of the risk of, of, of a mass spreader event, a super spreader event occurring as a result of outdoor gatherings because of the way that, that the virus is, is spread what we, and what we knew at the time. Notwithstanding that, he was jailed. And, and uh, the only reason why Timothy Stevens was freed, actually, was that on July the 1st, 
of, uh, of 2021, um, the, 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 the government of Alberta declared a COVID amnesty. Uh, many of us suspect that was done in order to accommodate the Calgary Stampede because they brought the restrictions back in in September. But, but, but for that, he would, he, would, he, he would still be at the remand center um, because he never accepted the bail condition, uh, nor did, did Pastor James Coates, but he was given the same bail condition uh, that, that he would not preach to his congregation. Uh, and he refused to comply with that, and so he was jailed. Uh, but so a father of six, a leader of a congregation, um, just an extraordinarily courageous and brilliant man, uh, Christian pastor, uh, jailed. And so Al- Alberta actually became known for, uh, known as a jurisdiction which jails Christian pastors, so much so that recently Tucker Carlson of Fox News, uh, his, his, uh, his show um, has, has created a documentary in which these two pastors are featured. And, and, the doc- and the documentary is about the rise of totalitarianism in Canada. And so what, a, what an incredible shame uh, and, and disgusting embarrassment this is for the province of Alberta, indeed for all of Canada, before the world, to have these Christian pastors unnecessarily uh, jailed for long periods of time when they had done absolutely nothing. It's significant to note that, that all of the charges were ultimately, through the grace of God, ultimately uh, dropped or defeated against Timothy Stevens. We actually had to run a trial in Calgary before a provincial court judge who quite properly found that uh, there was no basis for for these violation tickets. But we actually had to run a contested trial um, before a judge in Calgary in order to have these COVID tickets uh, thrown out against Pastor T- uh, uh, Timothy Stevens. Thank you, Leighton. I'll uh, open you up to the commissioners to see if they have any questions. Thank you. And there are questions. See my good friend, Mr. Drysdale. <laughs> good morning, Mr. Gray. How are you? I, I, wonderful. Wonderful to see you again. I have a number of questions, and since I'm not a lawyer, I do understand that there may be questions that you will not want to or will not be able to answer because I, I think you're a, what's the expression? You're a, um, uh, a representative of the court or something? Officer of the court, Officer yes. Officer of the court. But I'm going to ask them anyway. And okay. First question. Could you please enter the transcript of Dina Henshaw's testimony into our record? It's a public Certainly. document. Certainly. Thank yep. you. Yeah, we'll do so. And that way that the folks will be able to access that on our website and and be able to read exactly what was asked and what was said. There's also also a a video uh, recording that I think uh, we have as well um, that that I could submit um, in addition to the written transcript if you would like that. I would very much appreciate that. Is Is it not a fundamental tenant of our legal system that anyone appearing before a judge or before that system is treated equally under the law? Yes, that's one of the principles of fundamental justice that is recognized under our charter. It's also an age-old principle that's implied under what is commonly called the rule of law. The rule of law, of course, uh, stems all the way back to 1215 in the Magna Carta. And it stands for the idea that no one is above the law, but also that everyone is equally protected under that law. Does that 
also include the government? Yes, particularly the government, because it's important to remember, again, going back to the Magna Carta, that that, that was a cessation of, that was a, a cessation of power, a seceding of power from a, a king, a divinely uh, anointed king, to the Parliament of England. So it's very significant in terms of the rule of law that even the king is not above the law, then, let alone a prime minister. Then uh, in listening to you, you, the conversation between you and Mr. and, and Sean Buckley, I, there's something I don't understand then. In the one of the cases that you were talking about, I think it was an Ontario case, where the one side brought evidence, scientific evidence as I understand it, about various issues with regard to the vaccines and the pandemic and whatnot. But as I understand it, the judge ruled that the government's opinion was not subject to uh, dispute. And uh, I think the term you used was judicial notice, that the government just said, or sorry, the judge said that the government's opinion couldn't really be discussed or argued because it was just taken for granted. Correct. And uh, so this is what I meant when I said those of us who went into court against the government always felt like the visiting team, uh, you know, because we were trying to question things that were considered to be unquestionable. Um, there's a, a great recent example of this. Uh, my good friend James Kitchen, who I understand testified in this proceeding, uh, he was recently on my podcast. He represented a chiropractor uh, named Wall who went before a disciplinary proceeding um, and was actually suspended by that college for a period of time because he refused to wear a mask, even though uh, none of his patients had a problem with him not wearing a mask. And um, James Kitchen had quite properly produced some of the most eminent experts uh, that we know of, including people like Dr. Byron Bridle uh, on epidemiology and so on. And uh, the, the college, the chiropractic college, produced a, a GP, a general practitioner, with uh, no specific knowledge in epidemiology or virology or any of these things. And that uh, chiropractic college simply preferred the evidence of the GP to this mountain of expert evidence, eminent expert evidence, uh, that was produced by, by James Kitchen on behalf of Dr. Wall. And I have to say that is precisely what happened in the Ingram case. We produced eminent, and we, I mean, if there is a, a, a better expert than Dr. J. Bhattacharya, I mean, just to take Dr. Bhattacharya for a moment, uh, this man is a, is a, he teaches medicine at, uh, at an Ivy League college at Stanford. Um, he is one of the leading experts in epidemiology, and he also has a PhD in economics. So if you were gonna design a human being who could talk about the science of COVID and also speak authoritatively about the, the economic and societal impacts of lockdowns. This would be the human being. He's, a, he's almost like a human AI program. And, and yet um, all the government of Alberta lawyers did throughout that proceeding was try to discredit him. I want to come back to this because I'm, I'm, I'm what's in my mind right now is I'm, I'm considering the testimony we've had in the last several days in, Sas in Sask Saskatoon, and I keep hearing basic tenets of something, basic tenets of law, basic tenets of medicine. And one of the things, that, and perhaps you can't comment on this, but I heard in the last day or so 
medical doctors talking about a basic tenet of informed consent. Mm -hmm. And is form, informed consent, to your knowledge, something that is legally required or legally enforceable in Canada? Um, I, I think in terms of, of, a, uh, of a legal concept, the answer is clearly yes. There's, there are all kinds of examples of it uh, in, in the law, everything from, you know, the type of a waiver that you would sign when you, you know, you take your kids, uh, you know, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to go on a ride somewhere. Uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of forms of informed consent. Uh, but the specific one that you're talking about really uh, goes back to the Nuremberg Code of 1947, which came out of the aftermath of the experiments that were conducted on people in the Nazi death camps. Um, that is that has been that's part of clearly under uh, international law, and that concept has been imported in in my respectful view into Canadian law as well. Um, it, when you think of uh, people who uh, are are exposed to a surgery, they have elective surgery. Um, they have to be informed fully of what of the risks of that operation, and they can refuse that operation. Well, what we had with the COVID vaccines was something entirely different. The doctor of informed consent uh, was was completely ignored. In fact, there's not a single person who was asked or ordered or mandated to take this this vaccine, these experimental drugs, who could possibly have offered informed consent, because we don't know even the short term, let alone the long term impacts of these drugs for for human biology and human society. Well, we had testimony on this from various people, from doctors, Dr. Christian, and, and uh, people themselves who were, uh, was, I believe there was one lady who was pregnant and there was under tremendous um, uh, pressure from her doctor to take the shot when she was pregnant when we know for a fact, based on the evidence that had been presented to us, that the vaccines were never tested on pregnant women. So my question is, are you aware of any and of any legal actions being taken taken against doctors or pharmacies or whoever else injected people with these vaccines considering that they were not provided with the opportunity to give informed consent i i've researched this uh and there it, there is uh, one case i know of that is ongoing in uh, Manitoba that's specific to the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. I can tell you that uh, my firm has in development right now a vaccine harms class action, uh, which will be based upon, in, in part upon uh, the, this doctrine of informed consent, but, uh, but also simply based upon the fact that um, the Canadian government uh, purchased and 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 promoted uh, and, uh, and and pervade these vaccines uh, to the Canadian populace, either knowing or or, or having ought to have known that uh, they they that they were dangerous, uh, that there was no way actually to provide uh, to have individuals provide informed consent to to the taking of them. Uh, so um, this is a, an excellent question. I think, um, you know, early on, Mr. Buckley was talking about this spell. I, I, see, I see as we emerge out of that 
let's say this this you know psyop or, or or public haze i see that as the next frontier i i see that as uh the work the work that must be done by members of the legal profession and indeed uh, uh you know the principal members of, of medical colleges uh to carry on these case to to prosecute these cases and and to bring the responsible people to justice um that's something that has not yet happened in our country it's beginning to happen in the United States. Uh, there's a high-profile case uh, uh, that's been brought uh, in the United States uh, by a man named Pascal Najadi. I had him on my podcast, actually. Um, he's filed an action against Pfizer along these lines. So I believe that these cases are coming, uh, but they, they are sort of the new, that's the next wave. And I, I predict that this is going to be a very, very significant um, area of litigation uh, in the next decade or so. You know, we're, we're kind of talking about different areas, medical and legal, and we're talking about the basic, the basic fundamental building blocks, the, the, those things that these institutions were built upon, you know, that you're, you're equal under the law, that you have a right to informed consent, and that there is an obligation to, to inform the, 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 the patient. There's an, another part of this, and that is is that at least in my mind, and I don't know what the, what the, the 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 legal part of this is, but the legal in my mind, the justice system is made up of a whole lot of parts. One of those parts are the police, at least in my mind, and I don't know if that's that's legally true. But you know, we've heard a lot of things, and we've seen a lot of things. You know, we saw Mr. Buckley mentioned uh, a video of a veteran being pulled off of the war memorial and beaten. We saw the video. We saw the video of, I believe it was Toronto horse-mounted police trampling an elderly lady uh, in Ottawa. We saw, or believe we saw, texts or WhatsApp messages from the RCMP wanting to get some. And I don't know if that was an exact quote. In any case, my question is, are the police above the law in Canada? Are they subject to the same laws that you and I and my neighbors and my children are subject to? Well, I think they have to be. I, I think it, how can they uphold the law and yet not also be bound by it? But what you talk about raises a deeper question that I think is part of the, you know, the COVID pandemic experience. And, um, and this troubles me deeply because you know Canadian society um, I mean our country I cherish but what makes us who we are uh, are our cherished institutions and and perhaps the longest lasting most severe damage apart from what is done to to individual Canadians uh, to their health and their well-being and their psyche and and all of those things is the damage to our public institutions um, you know, confidence in public health, confidence in our professions like law and medicine, confidence in our schools, in our universities, in our justice system, in our police, all of these have been compromised. There's just no other way to say it. And, uh, and the, uh, I'm hopeful that this process, the, what, what is happening right now, the National Citizens Inquiry, is going to do much to begin that healing process. I know I actually um, 
I, I'm a senior fellow of a think tank called the Frontier Center for Public Policy. I was asked to actually write a review of Preston Manning's original paper on the COVID inquiry. I remember reading in there that one of the goals that Mr. Manning had was to that this would begin a healing process um, uh, where, whereby we could rehabilitate, which means to restore again to dignity. We could rehabilitate our confidence in our cherished institutions, including the police and all the other ones I mentioned. Because if we don't have that, we really don't have a functioning society. Just, just think of the level of confidence that uh, exists between a patient and a doctor, a student and a teacher, a lawyer and a client, uh, on and on and on. And if we don't have the, if we can't trust in the integrity of those institutions, um, how is it possible for them to, to, to work and to function? It, it, it almost invites chaos. I don't want to overstate it, but I, but I think, uh, I don't think it can be over, uh, uh, overstated in this context. We have a, we have a severe uh, and a tragic corruption of confidence in our public institutions. And Dr. Bhattacharya put this very well, actually, in, when he was testifying in the Ingram case. He said he was talking about the, the, the failure of public uh, of confidence in, in the public uh, health system. He said, you know, what if we had something that was as contagious as Omicron, but as, as lethal as Ebola? What would the response of the public be now in the aftermath of COVID? How many people would die? Because more than half of the people in our society now don't trust the medical establishment. They don't trust the information that they get from public health. And that's just, that's, to me, that's, a, that's maybe the ultimate example of the danger of the loss of confidence in our public institutions. That, that is certainly one component of it. The other component of it is uh, I've always considered, rightly or wrongly, that the justice system acts as a safety valve for our society. In other words, if you've been aggrieved or if the government has done something to you, you, you have the confidence that you can go to these institutions and get justice, which is different than legal. You know, <laughs> a legal decision mm -hmm. is not necessarily justice. But if, if the Canadian population who are waking up or who are starting or beginning to realize what's happened, perhaps through this inquiry, and they can't go, or they feel they can't go to the judicial system because of the performance over the last three years. Do you, do you think that's a, 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 an incredible danger to our, our society or the civility of our society? Where else can they go? I think it's extremely dangerous. And unfortunately, uh, we have a government in Ottawa that's more interested in social justice than, than actual justice and, and law and order and maintenance of our, of our public institutions, as you described. Um, I know one very dedicated and well-meaning individual, I believe in Winnipeg, who created a, a report about, about COVID and actually inspired many Canadians to actually go to uh, police detachments and try to get uh, certain people uh, you know, charged with criminal offences for for uh, for you know covid outrages and uh you know that that sort of i think that sort of grassroots activism is what we need unfortunately it does not appear that we're going to get much relief or change uh by by you know staring at the tops of the trees i think that we've got to have a grassroots movement in our country 
where we're getting down to the roots, getting involved in our communities and trying to solve these problems of justice, of health, of education, uh, all of these at the grassroots level, instead of looking to governments uh, to solve these problems. Because uh, it seems as though what's happening right now in our country is that um, our governments are only, only interested in frightening us into believing that we are in a constant state of a never-ending state of emergency, whether it's due to a virus or the climate or uh, you know public debt or in you know war and nuclear war or whatever. And of course, the government comes in and says, "Well, you must seize you must cede more of your liberty to us so that we can solve this problem." And it's it's sort of like what Ronald Reagan said back in the '80s that the scariest words in the English language are. Uh, you know, I'm from the government. I'm here to help. Uh, I think we as Canadians are going to have to take responsibility individually and as communities over our communities and solve these problems at a local level. And that might mean local policing uh, as opposed to having the RCMP. Nothing against the RCMP, but I think um, a very persuasive case could be made for saying that the RCMP at the highest levels has, has been politically corrupted. Um, I, I think there's ample evidence for that in the public sphere. I just have a few, more, a couple short ones. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to get into lots of trouble with the other commissioners who are squirming to <laughs> ask you questions, sir. Um, are you? Did you take in, or were you aware of the of the evidence we heard from Ryan or Diziak? I, I, I know. I'm I very familiar with Ryan. Uh, I had the pleasure of had the pleasure of getting to know him. Uh, as a uh, really a safety expert uh, who worked uh, for CN. And um, he actually, I, I interviewed him. There's an episode of my podcast where he talks for an hour about uh, his expertise, his safety expertise, and, and uh, really he, how he presented ample evidence to his company uh, for why everything they were doing in terms of the pandemic was wrong. And so, yeah, I'm quite familiar with Ryan uh, and... Uh, you know, I think he's uh, he's a very, very courageous and intelligent man, and um, he he could have prevented a lot of uh, anguish for CN employees if the company had had actually uh, respected the the advice that they hired him to provide to them. Could this possibly form a legal vector in which folks can um, have their employers who enforce mandates? Uh, be, become legally liable, do you think? Possibly. Um, the impediment there is, again, as I, as I spoke earlier in answer to Mr. Buckley's question, is, uh, you know, these, these unions uh, are, are standing in the way to a large degree. I don't want to paint them all with the same brush, but the vast majority of them really are aligned with the government narrative on COVID and, uh, and do not want to have anything to do with with taking up grievances or or a lot or, or or really taking these companies or the government of Canada uh, to task over over these uh, these safety concerns, there certainly is a viable argument to be made. And and actually, we have a case uh, that is before the federal court trial division right now on behalf of uh, of, uh, of of hundreds of of uh, postal workers. They're, they're called Posties for Freedom. And uh, and Ryan is going. Ryan's uh, evidence is going to be a key a key aspect uh, in that in that case if we can get to hearing. But of course, before we even get to a hearing on the merits and, and have his evidence heard, 
we're going to have to get past this procedural hurdle to have the court even take jurisdiction to hear the case. I guess that impediment doesn't exist for non-unionized workers. That's true. I have many more questions, but I'm going to pass it off to the other commissioners. Thank you, sir. sir. Thank you very much. I, I would be, I, although I haven't been invited yet, I would be pleased to appear on your podcast, which I follow uh, quite regularly. We would be happy to have you fo following all of the hearings. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Gray, for coming and giving us your testimony today. Um, I'm going to limit myself to uh, two areas um, in my questions. And I think you mentioned early in your testimony that you were a member of a uh, type of judicial selection board in the province of Alberta. And um, yesterday we heard from uh, a, a witness, James Kitchen, about um, his views on needing to potentially reform the judicial appointment process. I'm hoping you can give us a little bit, shed a little bit of light on what the process is for judicial appointments. Um, what the role these uh, selection boards play in it and whether you see any room for improvements. It is a, uh, it is a political uh, a process in Canada and uh, I don't want to suggest that there are not excellent people um, being appointed uh, to, to the bench in Alberta and in Canada. Clearly that is true. Uh, there are excellent legal minds who are being who are being uh, raised up to the level of of the bench. Um, where I got into trouble, just just speaking anecdotally, is that I I actually made a public pledge that I was going to select uh, the best candidates based upon merit, and that I was going to have little or no regard to uh, what we might call immutable characteristics. In other words, if we were selecting six judges and the six best most qualified people were 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 black uh, that I would pick all black if they were if the most qualified people were women then I would pick all women uh, it's my particular view that in in appointing someone to to the judiciary especially in Canada right now um, we must have the best most principled uh, people appointed to that bench we cannot be selecting people based upon uh, metrics like diversity inclusion equity um, because uh, the, the problem is, uh, when we do that, um, it, it, it risks not getting the very best uh, people. And, and the kind of power that judges enjoy in our society right now is so great um, that, uh, and we've seen this over, over COVID, we must have people occupying those positions who uh, have courage and will, at certain times, will be able to and, and will exercise. Uh, their authority, their their discretion, even when it requires an unpopular decision. I know James has been uh, very outspoken about this. Um, my concern about the process is that, particularly at the federal uh, at the federal level, uh, there is a a screening process um, for appointment to to superior to the superior court, uh, which is which is done through through the through the government of Canada. Um, that there are people who are being appointed based upon their political allegiances. In fact, uh, Mr. Lametti, our federal justice minister, has been really very, uh, very cavalier about revealing this, and uh, that's a that's a very deep concern because, of course, the in our system historically our judges have been a bulwark uh, against a government oppression, 
Um, they, we need to have confidence in our judiciary uh, that they will decide cases in a fair and impartial way. And, uh, and sadly, um, there is ample evidence uh, in our country uh, that during COVID, this was, not, this was not working out very well. And it goes deeper just the, than just the judiciary. It goes all the way down into people uh, who are on administrative uh, tribunals, people who are deciding uh, human rights complaints or, or, on, or on labor boards. Uh, or at, at universities uh, who are deciding, you know, for example, you know, student union complaints. Or, uh, for example, I mentioned uh, Mr. Kitchen's client, Dr. Wall, who went before the chiropractic college. Um, there's, there's, there's grave concern that these institutions are becoming uh, politicized. And, of course, uh, that, that, is, that is dangerous to, to the integrity of our law and of, and of our entire legal system and our system of justice. Uh, and and so um, there is reason to to be concerned about the manner in which judges are being appointed in our country. I would like to see a thorough review of the process to determine to what extent it is in fact being politicized. Um, and again, I have to clarify this. I'm not saying that the people who are being selected to the bench are all being appointed on the basis of their politics. I know that there are excellent people, and I have friends who are judges and and uh, people I admire greatly who are on the on the judiciary. Uh, and we have very, very talented people in our courts, um, brilliant people in our courts. Uh, but but there is a concern about the manner in which uh, judges are being selected uh, in this country. And I think part of the reason why I was never given the opportunity to actually sit down and select a judge now, now Layton, is because of my views. Leighton, can I just jump in for a second? And I'm, sure. I'm not trying to stop the... But if you can be a little more succinct in your, your answers Sorry. to the commissioners, just because we've got some witnesses stacked up. Sorry. And so on that note, I'm going to actually just note that I lied. I have three questions, not two. <laughs> but this next one should be very short. Uh, my fellow commissioner asked for the transcripts of uh, Dr. Hinshaw's uh, cross-examination. Uh, were there also uh, expert reports prepared by the province? And, and if so, could we have copies of those for our record as well? Uh, yes, uh, they're a matter of public records, so we can, we can provide you with a full, uh, with a full uh, documentary record of that proceeding. Thank you. And finally... Um, I've heard you speak today about uh, what I think is a, a failure of many unions to represent um, employees uh, when it came to the vaccine mandates. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on how that process can be improved upon, um, assuming that the way it's been going so far is not, uh, not going to reach the, a resolution that is satisfactory to these employees. Should they be able to have recourse against their unions when this, when this happens? Should they be able to go around their unions directly at their employers? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I, I think it's, it's something that needs to be examined. In particular, um, there's something called the duty of fair representation that the union owes to, to, to the workers under, under these, uh, these uh, collective bargaining agreements. Um, I think one thing that's of concern is uh, you know, who are populating these tribunals who actually decide whether or not the union is, is discharging that duty properly. That's something I think needs to be reviewed. But I think, um, you know, COVID, uh, looking sort of at the silver lining, it revealed a lot of cracks in many of our institutions. And I think uh, this whole concept of unionized labor is, uh, is yet one 
one example of, of that. Thank you. Good morning. I'm not a lawyer, but I do thank you for your honest testimony. I have, um, I'm gre greatly disturbed, maybe that's not the right word, right word, but aggrieved by the memories of what they did to churches and how that came about in Alberta. I'm from Ontario, so I got to watch firsthand throughout the experience of this whole COVID. But I have a question. Going back to your earlier testimony when you started speaking about the Ingram case, in, um, it's my recollection that either in late 219 or early 220, a Quebec lower court asked for stronger euthanasia, law, euthanasia laws, and they gave the feds six months, the federal government six months, to put in stronger euthanasia legislation under the MAID program. And as we know, the federal government brought forward, well, first they asked for an extension of six months for COVID, and then they brought forward a poorly worded, and those are my words, euthanasia legislation in response to satisfy this lower court decision. I don't want to get into regionalization and that part of it, but the feds have had almost three years to respond in the Ingram case, and no decision has been made. So do you think that the stalling by the court, and that again is my words, that's how I'm perceiving this, will result in a passage of time argument or a decision, or as we heard yesterday, a moot decision? Um, I don't think that that will occur in the Ingram case, but we certainly have seen that happen in other cases. Of course, many people know about the high profile decision involving uh, Brian Peckford and Maxine Bernier with their Section 6 charter challenge. Uh, as many people know, uh, about 7 million Canadians were unable to travel on a, on a ship, a train, or an airplane uh, for a very long time. And uh, those two men, through the, the assistance of the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedoms, uh, were able to, I think, bring about a change in the law. But what happened in that case was precisely what you said, by the time that they got to the court for a determination of whether or not those travel restrictions violated Section 6 charter mobility rights, uh, the, the government had already suspended them and removed them. And so the court said that the issue was moot and that there was nothing to be decided. I don't think that that will happen in the Ingram case because the Ingram case um, engages also, it, it, we, we actually asked for uh, damages and we also asked for a determination of whether or not um, the Chief Medical Officer of Health exceeded her statutory authority in making those health orders. And that's a very important determination because if that is true, if the court makes that finding, and I've, I happen to think that that finding is inescapable, um, that will open the door for many, many civil lawsuits against the Governor of Alberta uh, by, by people who lost their businesses uh, and and so on. So I, I do think that we're going to get a meaningful decision in the Ingram case. I don't think that the court can escape making a decision in that particular case through mootness, although there is a concern that that could occur in cases of this kind. And my second question is, and you, you kind of alluded to this in your testimony, do you think there'd be a trickle-down effect or um, 
response in terms of the lesser magistrates, uh, the different ones that you've alluded to, that they ought to have known, and I'm thinking specifically of the Craver inquiry and the tainted blood scandal, when um, the, ro- the heads that rolled were the two top um, officials of the Red Cross, and yet everybody who worked there, the decision makers that were under those two, were not held accountable or responsible. So going forward in terms of court cases, and again, you've alluded to some of this, will we see some of these uh, decision makers who are lesser magistrates in our society who were equally responsible for dividing the social fabric and uh, destroying what we knew as Canadian society, our democracy, our rights and freedoms, will they also be uh, brought to a place where they are held accountable and responsible? Well, that, that's a question that honestly I, I can't answer. I don't know. I, honestly, what we are seeing right now, um, and this gives me some degree of hope, is we're actually seeing some very rational decisions uh, in these lower courts. Uh, there was a recent labor arbitration case involving Via Rail in which the arbitrator actually found that, that Via Rail's vaccine uh, mandate was not a reasonable basis, a legally justifiable basis in order to terminate uh, uh, Via Rail employees' employment. And so, in fact, it might be conceivable that we're going to start to get these more rational decisions at the lower levels and that they'll, they'll make their way up into the higher courts. It's my view that we are less likely to get uh, a change, um, as I say, at the tops of the trees. We're more likely to get it uh, at, the, at the lower levels, at the, at the, at the root, uh, and that that will make its way up. You know, it's of concern, and, and those of many people realize this, are, you know, the chief justice of our Supreme Court, uh, Mr. Justice Wagner, uh, made some very pointed public comments in the aftermath of the truckers convoy um, about the people who participated in that. And, uh, you know, this is most concerning. And also, I mean, our former uh, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, uh, who's uh, sitting on a tribunal uh, over in China, uh, you know, she, she wrote a, an op-ed um, not long after the, after the truckers' convoy, who, again, in support of the Government of Canada's narrative. So um, I don't think there, there's a great deal of hope that we're going to get a, a huge change, a policy shift, at the upper levels of our judiciary, certainly not not unless and until uh, there's a change in the way that uh, in in the government narrative uh, that we've been talking about. So I'm I'm actually more hopeful that we're going to start to make inroads at these lower levels of court, and that that will make it its way up to the tops of the trees, as it were. And my final question is about. Um, I'm just going to start off with. Uh, a quote by Albert Camus, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I'm just wondering mm-hmm. if you have any recommendations that ordinary Canadians can do, uh, again, taking personal responsibility, that might uh, sway the judiciary and the government to think about what they have done over the last three years. Um, I think that... Um what I would, what I encourage people to do is to get involved 
at the grassroots level. Uh, Getting people, people, I mean, one of the one of the greatest and most common shared feelings of people in our country uh, throughout the pandemic is powerlessness, and I happen to believe that that is by design. But it, that's a lie. That's not true. We all have individual personal power. We all have things that we can do. Not everyone is an eminent doctor or uh, a, a you know a litigation lawyer or a high power journalist or whatever. But everyone has things within their power that they can do that can make a difference uh, in in the li- in their families, uh, in in the you know getting involved at the local school level, getting involved in local politics, um, speaking out. Um, I think I think we need to do more. There's a level of uh, complacency. There's this spell that Mr. Buckley talked about that must be broken. And the only way to do that is to do something, uh, to take action. We've been too much, I think, as a country, as a nation, we've been spectators, uh, allowing things to be done to us or to be done for us. And I think the more that we that we get active in our own lives and 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 within our personal reach, that that is that is how we're going to make the greatest difference. That's how we're going to restore confidence in our in our communities and our and and in our local uh, institutions. And you know where could that lead? Where could that go? Um, the the one thing that we know right now is that you know I think uh, you know there's a there's a famous quotation from C.S. Lewis to the effect that, you know, be careful about putting too much faith in one person. And with all due respect to our political leaders, I don't think that we can look to them and we can look to to a ballot box uh, to restore our country. I think that, uh, I think we have to take individual responsibility for what we can control in our daily lives. And if we, if, if more and more of us start to do that, I think that is the antidote. That's the antidote to to this chaos. That that is what is going to restore our country to to dignity. Thank you for taking the time to testify this morning. Thank you. It's been my honor. Leighton, on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, we sincerely thank you for your testimony today. Thank you. Uh, in closing, would you mind if I just read a brief uh, biblical verse I'd like to share with people who've watched this? Sure. It's from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. It reads as follows. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened, strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes all knowledge, that ye might find you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages world without end amen thank you